0: Today on The Talent Cast, Travis Kalanick and the terrible, horrible, no good, very, very, very bad month Uber's had when we get back. Howdy! Welcome to The Talent Cast, where we talk about the new world of talent acquisition and recruitment marketing. I am always, am your host, James Ellis. Uh, I was bitten by a radioactive recruiter once and discovered I had strange new powers, and thus, we are here. This podcast is not sponsored or supported by anyone whatsoever. We have instituted a 100% no-pitching rule. We're here to learn, teach, and discuss so we can all become better recruitment marketing thinkers. I'm not here to sell you anything. If you like this podcast, and I really hope you do, tell the world on LinkedIn and Twitter and any other place you're professionally social. I'm pretty sure your friends don't care. Uh, you can always review us on iTunes or Google Play. We really appreciate that. Uh, as always, if you have comments, questions, topic suggestions, if you would like me to discuss uh, your particular problem, if you know someone I should interview, reach out to me on the Twitter. It's the War for Talent. That's right, the War for Talent. Or just go to our website. We're at the Talent com, the talentcast.com otherwise here we go hope you enjoy hey hey you doing james ellis here thanks for listening uh, yeah so it's going to be a bit of a doozy um, this is the i think one the second time we've done any kind of i will not call it breaking news by any stretch this is a podcast recorded days ahead of time but Uh, We're going to do a super deep dive into Uber because it's had some, you know, stuff happen to it recently. For those of you not aware, um, and frankly, I don't know how well this information gets out beyond the Americas, uh, though Uber Uber certainly has a huge presence outside of the U.S., Um, we're going to do a deep dive into this stuff, and there are many, many, many elements to these stories about what's been happening to Uber, what's going on, and how it connects to the employer brand and potential solutions, or at least remedies, or what next steps they should be taking, considering. Uh, that's what we're going to focus on. So if you don't want to listen to it, this is where you stop. Otherwise, I promise not to do too many Uber jokes. Um, I try. I, lo- I love a good Uber pitch joke. My favorite is something like... Uh, it's like Uber, except it summons the exact right song at the exact right moment. It's like Uber, but it gives you the reason for revenge. Um, I, I, that, I, I think that's the last one I'm going to do. So uh, what's going on in Uber? So like I said, if you're not paying attention, uh, and not all this information has gotten out beyond the kind of Uber sphere and the kind of people who pay attention to the stuff that's mostly Silicon Valley press and... Um, in a handful of other places, but it has leaked out other places. I have seen it in, in some major publications. So let's try and go through the timeline a little bit. So we're going back about a month, um, just to double-check. It is, I think it's February 19th when Susan Fowler wrote a very long article. Uh, by the way, I'm going to link to everything in the show notes. A very long article about a blog post, actually, about her year at Uber. She was leaving to go to another company, and she wanted to put down her Memories and thoughts about Uber as a company from, an in, from the inside as an employee And it was a, yeah, it was a humdinger as they would say somewhere I'm sure um, Just all sorts of accusations of sexual harassment Not just like from an individual but like across the board Like this is a standard, the way she makes it sound like this is standard operating procedure That women are treated pretty badly and pretty poorly uh, inside of Uber Now accusations certainly But let's be fair. This is a company whose CEO Travis Kalanick has been quoted in in uh, GQ as saying, you know, referring to Uber as as a tool for which, for by which he can uh, get girls. He calls it boober. Um, Yeah. So this is a I'm not yes accusations certainly. There's no evidence presented, but I'm gonna say this is a pretty serious accusation, and if true, has implications, deep implications. And right now, I'm inclined to listening consider it it's not uh, baseless speculation this is a first person account of what she says happened and based on that article well the first set of plagues seemed to have hit uber and everybody started to come out of the woodwork and this is a horrible place to work and sexual harassment and then you know it ex- like all uh, silicon valley press type stuff it expanded beyond the initial scope of inquiry to say you know is this endemic to all silicon valley co- silicon valley companies there are some who say it is more likely to be true in Silicon Valley than other places. There are some places that say it's an individual culture kind of thing, blah 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 blah. That's how the press works, right? You start with a tiny story, you break the tiny story, and when there's nothing else to break, you figure out how to apply that story to a million other possible story ideas to get your article on the front page of whatever, or to get shared on HuffPost and BuzzFeed and what have you. Great, so obviously that's where things started to go wrong for Uber. Um, not very long after that because you know the hits just keep on coming. Um, Uber uh, Travis, who is on uh, Trump's board of advisors, some sort of technical board advisors. I don't have the exact title in front of me, but he is famous because in that in that regard, because a number of Silicon Valley leaders who said that they would be part of this to help Trump figure out technical solutions. Because. While he certainly seems to own a lot of stock in Twitter, um, Trump is not exactly as a 70-year-old man whose most of his money is in real estate, we hope. you know, not exactly a technical guru, not exactly a guy, you know, this is a guy who says, my 12-year-old nephew really knows computers really good. So, (laughs) the man needs some help regardless. So, Silicon Valley insiders said they would help, and then when things started to fly in the first couple of weeks, they all kind of went, you know what, this is not cool. Specifically, the travel ban, the immigration ban, some of them call it the Muslim ban for some pretty solid reasons, uh, um, effectively saying if you're from these seven countries we don't want you to come in or if you try to we're either going to deport you flat out or we're going to do some serious extreme vetting or you know here's the thing when it's not really a law it's just an uh, executive action no one really knows what's going on no one really understands the process there's usually not a process built into that sort of thing and that's a problem because Uh, for those of us here in America that's been nothing but executive order after executive order Congress hasn't actually done much in the first 30-35 days of the Trump presidency actually we're coming up on quite a bit more yeah Uh, 40-50 days Congress hasn't done anything they haven't passed any laws. It's been all executive orders, which is messy and complicated, but that's a episode for a completely different politics podcast than this one. Anyway, Travis, after all the uh, uh, all the other CEOs and, and dignitaries and, and other uh, uh, luminaries of the Silicon Valley tech world dropped out, Travis said, nah, I'm sticking around. Uh, I think I'm going to play this out for whatever. Didn't really give a justification or at least one that made any sense or, you know, he didn't really spell it out. He didn't give given long, tearful blog posts like some people do. He stuck around. And then, of course, a couple days later when the travel ban kicks out and every – well, not every, but certainly a lot of people in the U.S. freaked out, um, that's a problem. Now, of course, the travel ban is incredibly problematic for Uber for a couple of reasons, and we're going to dive into that for a second before we get on to the next couple of issues that have hit uh, Uber. The first of which is that this is a case where employer brand and consumer brand are effectively the same. Now that doesn't happen very often. Let me tell you why. Because if you were, if you own a taxi company, you own a series of cars or, yeah, and you hire a bunch of people to drive those cars 12 hours a shift or whatever your local regulation says to do. And those people are your employees. And those Employees pick up people at airports and hotels and take them places and drop them off and hope for tips. And they make a, a meager living on salary and they really live on your tips, et cetera. And that's the gig. That's a standard job, like any other job, like working at, uh, I don't know, McDonald's or Target or any other place. You are an employee and you have cons- customers. Now, as had been said in infographics and other kind of cute little um, snippety things, Airbnb is the world's largest hotel company. It doesn't own any land. Uber is the world's largest transportation company it does not own a car what happens is is because of the sharing economy and by the way if you uh, the sh- I find the sharing economy to be fantastic and radically interesting and potential uh, evolutionary change in our way we think about products and goods and services and how we apply them and i think if you are interested in that sort of thing go read um jeremiah o yang's stuff his his honeycomb and his, his infographic and all of this speaking in the last two years about the uh, the sharing economy has been fascinating and so again links in show notes um but when you're sharing, and Uber positions itself as saying, "Look, we don't have any employees. We have we have employees. They run the app, and they run the executive, and they you know they they do administrative stuff, and they do coding, and they do QA, and all that good stuff. But those drivers who pick you up at the airport, or take you to the airport, or do whatever you do, and take you from one club to home, so you don't you know drive drunk. Those people aren't actually employees of ours. They are contractors. They are in fact they're barely even contractors at all. Uber's legal stance for a long time, and this is complicated from HR people like us, um, is that those people have no connection to Uber other than they signed up for a service. That Uber's job is much like a matchmaking service. Um, you know, when if you're a, a, a dude and you sign up for a match, you don't expect that the dudette or other dude you hook up with is a match employee. They're not at all match employees, they're just other people looking to make matches. That's how Uber positions itself, that those people don't work for them. They only create the opportunity for those matches and find a way to take a piece of coin out of that process. Now, of course, cities and localities and regulators think that that's complicated and messy and probably untrue, and there are legal battles happening about that. But what happens is, is that For Uber, they have two customers. They have the people they're picking up and dropping off from at hotels and clubs and airports and whatnot, and they also have another customer, the person who's driving the car. Now the problem with that is, you know, in a model where your consumer and your quote unquote employee are the same, your employer brand and your consumer brand are the same. They overlap like a Venn diagram that's just a circle. (laughs) It's complicated because let's be fair. Let's look at the demographics of Uber drivers. Are they more likely to be non-white? Yes. Are they more likely to be lower income? Yes. Are they more likely to be impacted by things like travel bans or have friends who are impacted by the travel bans? Yes. Whether you are or not, as as a rider... That has an implication. Maybe you're, you, you're on the liberal side of the fence and you think the travel ban is wrong and you don't like the way he's doing it. That may have no impact on your choice of using Uber versus Lyft. As a driver, your quote-unquote employer has made a very clear case that they're siding with this idea that more brown people of a particular flavor should not be coming into this country um, and that directly impacts you, your friends, your family, your community, et cetera, et cetera. You're going to take that a little differently you're going to take that a little more personally. You are effectively riding to provide profit back to a company who seems to be believing that that's a good thing and you don't. Obviously, drivers don't want to agree with that. So what happened was, this comes to a head two ways. One, uh, New York City, I think it was JFK, uh, taxi drivers went on strike for an hour in uh, rush hour in front of JFK. They refused to pick anybody up for an hour. That you know, as a protest to say, look, you don't want people like us, pick you know, being in this country, you know, much like Fight Club, uh, for those who remember that joke, we are the people who you depend on and trust. We are the little people that, quote unquote, little people who. Um, you know, that the world lives on. You know, we take out your trash, and we clean your stuff, and we serve your food, and we drive your taxis. You know, you don't step on us because we play a very powerful role. We're not very visible, necessarily, and you may take us for granted, but you really shouldn't. And so, in order to make that case crystal clear, they stopped service at JFK, the busiest aer- one of the busiest airports in the U.S., for an hour. Now, Uber did not Uber had no connection to this protest, but as taxi drivers of a type, they could get looped into this and say, okay, well, we're going to potentially also, you know, abide by this ban. Now, the fact that they didn't doesn't mean that there's an implicit agreement with Trump's immigration plan, which is how things get messy, because I don't think any. I think at, the, at that point, no message had been given saying Travis and you Uber believes and agrees with this Trump plan. It was a lot of tacit agreement based on the fact that he was on this panel and he hadn't said anything otherwise. On top of which, the fact that he did allow, or at least didn't not allow, I guess in the case, this uh, this, this one-hour protest suggested that they were going to break the strike. They were going to break ranks, that they were going to be a strike breaker, which Says we don't care about that, we just want the money, that's all we care about. Now, they were good enough to remove surge pricing, which based on the fact that the demand for rides hadn't changed but the supply of rides suddenly dropped off a cliff because for an hour all these drivers decided to sit on their heels in protest meant that that surge pricing would have skyrocketed. They turned off surge pricing. What they said, effectively, is is it looks like, from an optics point of view, is we're taking advantage of this situation to gain and garner more customers. We don't care what that protest is about. We care about money. And that's how it played out. And it looked like further encouragement or at least agreement with the travel ban, the immigration ban. Now, that sparked the next round of hashtag delete uber, which if you didn't see it was people saying, you know what, if he if Travis and Uber are going to be full on advisors and, and believers in what Trump is doing, we as consumers can make choices. We can choose to not use Uber. In many places, in many large cities especially, um you have a choice. You don't have to use Uber. You can use Lyft or you can use any number of other services Services depending on which country you're in. I know that the, in the U.S. it's Lyft and, and Uber primarily, but I know in other countries there are a lot of other choices. And as consumers we get to choose. And the hashtag delete Uber, all one word because it's a hashtag, um, started to spread around. And that's problematic because on a couple levels. Now first off, <laughs> Uh, what the, the goal was is to actually say, look, I'll take a picture of me deleting the Uber app so I'm no longer part of the system and tweet that. And that was what you were supposed to do. And, and depending on what numbers you saw, up to 200,000 people participated. Now, that's a huge number except for the fact that Uber has millions and millions of apps downloaded. So potentially that didn't make an impact, though... I did hear that Lyft popped up to the top of the uh, uh, Apple charts for the app, app, suggesting that people were switching, uh, at least enough for a day or two. Um, I think the real impact was not that the consumers were suddenly gone because consumers change their mind all the time. I think the problem is really about the drivers. It's really about the employees, quote-unquote employees in this case, by saying we don't – let's be fair. Uber does not take a very strong stance to say we don't agree with this policy. We stand by our – are the people who work with us – i.e. drivers, whether they're called employers or not. They really, you know, in this case, de facto are. This is how we stand and this is what we believe. And that was a huge problem. So yet another issue. So ho- let's let's walk it through. You've got Boober. You've got a history of breaking rules to get regulations passed or to figure out how to exist within highly regulated spaces where they technically weren't allowed to do. Places like Austin and I know there's a couple of cities in the northeast uh, – northwest, rather um, – you know, denied Uber, but Uber fa- has found ways of trying to skirt the laws and skirt the regulation. Then you've got the implicit agreement at the time of the travel ban, which led to the JFK spike surge issue, which led to delete Uber. So, so far, rough month. <laughs> no, this is not a place I want to own stock in just based on the last month. It gets better. So then. A video gets released of our friend Travis. And I say it like he's he's my best friend, and I can use his first name. That's not the case. And by the way, I own no stock in either Lyft or Uber. I have no position in this. Uh, Where Travis is effectively yelling at a driver. He is being what has to be one of the biggest jerks in the history of jerkdom to an Uber driver. Remember, not an employee. To Uber's standpoint, so really, this has no impact, but the fact that it was all caught on video, and of course, once it's on video, it gets released on Facebook and YouTube and all sorts of wonderful places, in the world sees it, and we all go, man, that guy's a jerk. So, I mean, and, and we none of us act surprised. This is a guy who, again, Boomer, again, has been accused of sexual harassment. Again, all these other issues are happening, and it obviously, you know, one might say he was really stressed that week, and I can see feeling like you're at the end of one's tether but to yell at a person like that is bad and of course to have it caught on video is just as if not worse that added to the fact that this is not a company that treats its employees well see a pattern hold on we're not done yet kids we're not even done there's one more then comes the news i think from wired i can't remember anyway um that uber has a Policy process in, internally in which cities and localities in which they're trying to establish a foothold that regulators are doing a lot of work to block them, which is legal. Uh, Uber has decided to build a alternate reality app in which the data they the uh, the, the people on that app see is not true. So when you go, because you're a regular person, one presumes, and you open your Uber app, you can see all the different cars in the local area. And it can say, oh, yeah, you've got one within three minutes of you. And, you can, you know, and while you and I, who are un- un- humans, understand that that's a, mostly a lie, <laughs> that it says there's three minutes, but that has no bearing on reality. It could be one minute. It could be 12 minutes. Um, and then we, we make decisions based on that information. If Uber thinks you are a city official or a government regulator, what it does is it feeds a different set of data to you. Not so you've got a regulator standing next to a regular non-regulator. The non-regulator will get "quote unquote" real data. The regulator will get fake data, ghost cars, um, cars don't exist, you know, that really exist, uh, all sorts of weird numbers. Now, that's not something an individual does. A, a rogue programmer does not say, "I'm going to figure this out." This is a corporate policy. This is something that people up a chain said yes to and applied resources to and chose to do. This is a corporate decision. Now, I say that specifically because that again reinforces this pattern that Uber does not play by the rules like everybody else does, right? Okay, so th- that's that been their month. <laughs> I mean, really? <laughs> that was in a month. <laughs> it's been brutal for the brutal for uber and that's just an ooh sound i like to make apparently so let's talk about it what what does all that mean now i i, I mentioned the pattern i don't want to f- um point out to an article that did i know for sure came out in wired last week which i thought was fascinating Fa- i'm sorry not wired fast company my bad um fascinating article about the concept of brands as patterns Okay, so I'm going to dive into that for a minute before we come back and, and apply it to Uber because I think it was a fascinating article. What was great about the article, it wasn't a radically different idea so much as it was as a explanation of an idea that I've felt but never been able to express. I've never been able to kind of put my finger on it. And literally a sentence into this article, I went, well, yeah, obviously this is fantastic, and which is I love those articles, which is it expresses this thing we've – felt but not been able to put our finger on. Right? I love those. Those Love those ideas. There are a number of books like that. You're like, oh god, that explains so much. Yes, of course that makes sense. But it's this idea that we've talked about brand as, you know, we use the Jeff Bezos rule of a brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room, and an employer brand is what uh, what people say about you when they're not on the clock. Um, Yes, all that's true. And there's another way of thinking about it. A brand is a persistent pattern. So I go back, I go to Uber, Uh, I'm sorry, I go to Apple. So, Apple, whether you like them or hate them, whatever, Apple has this brand perception that they are all about really cutting edge design. Slick, bulletproof, glossy, considered a million different ways, so well considered you can't believe it, glorious design. The first iPhone iPods, iPads, the whole, the MacBook. Now, regardless of how you feel about the little strip on the iBook right now, or the, the MacBook right now that, you know, blah, 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 whatever. Generally, just unbelievably cool designs because they make the hardware and software, and they get to make choices, and they have opportunities that no one else could. The Mac Air, for example, glorious when it first came out. The guy pulls it out of an envelope <laughs> at a time when most laptops were about an inch wide and heavy as a brick. Just insane. That is... The brand perception for a lot of people now what if apple decided today to roll out a laptop that looked like a dell from 2005 a big old brick a big old block a slab of gray plastic and silicon that would not fly it would not make sense because apple has a brand pattern of releasing only really well-designed from a visual standpoint, products, whether you like them, whether you like using them, whether you think the user experience and user interface makes sense. That's not what we're talking about. The hardware, the look and the feel, the the, the tactile sense of touching it, the fact that it's all smooth, the way the buttons are done, all that stuff is their brand pattern. It's their brand. Whether they're selling hardware or software, the expectation is this is well designed, which is why... When Apple does drop an, uh, you know, an egg, you know, you look at the, for the longest time, my favorite thing I hated about Apple was, and this is quibbly and nitpicky and meaningless, but here we go. You're listening, so there you go. Suck it up. Um, is the notepad on the iPhone had the world's worst font. It was some sort of brush pen, Mark, sharpie pen script that was like, what am I, 12? I need to take notes. I need to take a quick note. I need to be able to read it. Can you just use Helvetica? Can you just use a system font that makes any kind of sense? This kind of sense that, oh, it's on yellow-lined paper, so it's like I'm writing a note. Get it? Get it? This, this anthropomorphic bull I hated that because it looks so kind of like, oh, we need some sort of notes app. Quick, cobble one together. You, junior intern designer, you design one quick. Well, everything else is supposed to look physical, so I'm going to make a yellow notepad. I'm going to use a brush, Sharpie font. Good. Next. Knocked it out. Just atrocious design, and it stuck out like a sore thumb for people who used it. That's a brand. A brand is that perpetual pattern of what you see. Apply it to a car company you like. Why do you like that car company? Do they, that company keep doing those things? You know, you look at the classic example of the Volvo being the safe car. Every time they talk about Volvo, they talk about safe cars. They talk about their safety record. They talk about how safe they are. Hey, guess what? It's a brand pattern. They're reinforcing this pattern. It's not about doing something once. It's about doing something over and over and over again until the world seems to get a sense of, well, that's who they are. That's what a brand is. It's a perception. It's a, it's a a It's an understanding, shared though individual, of what this company stands for right um, you know you can take that a million different ways take any brand that you think is strong Harley-Davidson Microsoft Google um, Ford I don't care Boeing it doesn't matter what do they stand for what do they produce again and again and again whether it's the physical good the service they provide the support around it what is it remember let's go back to Apple Apple was the one who released the Genius Bar. Before there was the Genius Bar, i.e., the physical place you could go to hand your laptop to a, to somebody and say it broken, I need it better. Where did you go to get your your laptop fixed? You there was no Microsoft Bar, there was no Dell Bar, there's no place you bought a. Dell or a Compaq or an IBM or a Lenovo laptop and it had Microsoft's operating systems it had Adobe software and maybe somebody else's software. When something doesn't work, who's faulted it? And they all point at each other. Dell would point at Microsoft, who pointed at Adobe, who pointed at Dell? And your best bet was, you're on your own, kid. And uh, Apple said, we're going to provide well-designed service. That is a brand. A brand committed to itself to say, we know who we are, we know what we're all about, we're going to keep doing exactly that. Got it? Employer brand is no different. Go back to probably the most powerful employee brand, or at least the first big employee brand, SAS, for those of you who remember our episode about employer brand. SAS is a company, a a statistical analysis company out of Cary, North Carolina, right next to Raleigh. Hey, guys. Cary, C-A-R-Y, stands for Containment Area of Relocated Yankees, and having lived there for a long time, I get to make that joke, and because I was a Yankee at the time. it, they are, were super well-known, late 90s, early aughts, before really the concept of employer brand took off anywhere, that they were all about work-life balance. They didn't pay you any more than anybody else did, it wasn't, wasn't about you were thrown money like you would at a Goldman Sachs or a Google or a Facebook now. It was about all we want to do is make your work and life better we're going to have on-site daycare, on-site lunch that we're going to to uh, support, we're going to we're going to uh, supplement. That we're going to we're going to pay, you know, you're not going to you're not going to have to pay 10, 12 bucks for lunch. You're going to have to pay a couple of bucks for lunch. This is of course before Google made it and Facebook made it all free for everybody. Uh, on-site healthcare, on-site daycare, on-site gym, and my favorite perk of all, the gym had a laundry so all you had to do was stitch your name in the back of your shirt, you threw your laundry in a hamper, then that day it got washed, folded and put it back put back in your locker so the next day you went to the gym clean clothes every single time. I mean, that's an amazing thing. That is a company whose employer brand was so focused on taking care of their employees that they went to the point of having a laundry service set up. Name another company that does that. That's what they're famous for in taking care of their clients. Compare that to a Goldman Sachs who is my favorite go-to for being the opposite of that. They're all about not that. They do not care that if you work 10, 12, 15, 18, those numbers keep going up hours a day. They want you to. Because all you're there for is to make a boat ton of money. You're there so that when someone says, where do you work, you can put your you put your nose in the air and say, I work at Goldman Sachs. That is where you work. You make a boat ton of money, and that is where you work. It is money and status. That is why people show up. Nobody shows up there for the loving environment. (laughs) Nobody. Nobody shows up at SAS for the money. Simple as that. That's your employer brand. And everything you do reinforces. The pattern shapes the brand. It reinforces and creates and establishes the brand. That's what happens. Every time SAS would add a new perk, if they had said, okay, here's a new uh, bonus sharing perk. That doesn't reinforce the idea of this being about work-life balance. Everything, all those bonuses were funneled back into perks to make it easy for you to work eight hours a day at the office and then go home and not think about work. That's what, that's what we're talking about, this reinforcing pattern perpetually every single day, reinforcing this idea, which is why when a co- company says we're all about customer service and then you start to hear stories about horrible customer service, that's a problem. It's not that horrible customer service is evil, it happens everywhere. But if you've decided to make your brand promise about customer service and you can't deliver, you're toast. So let's go back to Uber. Hey Travis. So if your brand, and let's 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 boil this down a bit. Your brand is what people say it is. Your brand is the perpetual pattern of things you do over and over again. What is Uber's brand? Uber's brand is that of the Rule Breaker. They tried a new thing. In fact, the story I'm told is that Uber had the idea, realized it was illegal, decided to sit on its hands because they said, well, we can't offer rides like this because taxi commissions won't allow it and the laws and regula- regulations don't allow for this thing. And another company started doing it and started making money. And they said, well, gosh, if they're going to do it, we might as well. So the irony th- ironic thing is that they started by being this company that wanted to do right but they realized that their entire brand was not about that. They were about rule breaking. They were, and and to be fair, let us be super clear. This is a company and an idea that is brand new, and you don't have a brand new idea where everybody goes, cool, let's do that. Let's go back to the iPhone. When the iPhone first came out, Everybody, I mean, like most, almost everybody looked at it and went, There's no way that's going to survive. It's way too expensive. Yeah, sure, it can surf the internet really slowly, but, but it's got no buttons. And it's, how does it, how do you, know, there, there's no typing and there's <clears throat> the keyboard is, is not physical and you can't touch it. And it only, you can only get on one carrier. Are you kidding? This is a horrible, horrible idea. Flash forward. One half of all your friends have one. <laughs> right? Every new idea starts with everybody going, That's a bad idea. And in some cases, that bad idea is a function of violating existing rules. Those rules are there to optimize an existing process. That's what regulation's is all about. If regulation's is about um, how many parts per million of, 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 I don't know, nitrogen are allowed in water, and I'm, I'm making these up, and I'm not a chemist nor a regulator. It's about making sure that not too much nitrogen is getting to the water supply and not too much nitrogen getting to you. Now, nitrogen is not really harmful in any kind of dosages, but what happens when it turns out that there's a new product that takes nitrogen out of the water? Suddenly, the regulation that says you may not allow more than X number of nitrogen particles into the water uh, is a rule is optimized optimized around the idea that that's – the, that's as much as you can do for the water so you have to protect the sources that run into it if technology comes around an idea comes around that shifts that around you have to change the regulations who is who's the regulations written by and enforced by the government not well known for being you know agile fast changing and I have, <laughs> I have a lot of work in poli so I know this government you have to understand is designed specifically I mean literally intentionally to be slow To be hard to change. The goal of government, electoral colleges, the two different houses of representatives and senators, the three branches of government is there to make it very hard for any new idea to stick. Because what the founding fathers wanted is that you really had to think about it. You really had to run all these hurdles. You can't just have a flash-in-the-pan idea and suddenly enact it. That's, you know, you might have a bad idea. Right? So the goal of government is to be slow and the goal of Silicon Valley and and, and these new ideas is to be fast and you can see where these problems happen. So thus, Uber is in a position where if it wants to start this brand new idea, which again, going back to the collaborative economy, is on the whole, done properly, a huge advantage. Having Uber has made my personal life better. It has given other people opportunities to have part-time jobs that they would not have normally had. I think it's fundamentally better. It has allowed me to not own a car. Now, Ford might take exception and Toyota might take exception, but we're not going to talk about that right now. I think having Uber as a service, as an idea, is fundamentally good. The fact that there are regulations in front of it that keep it from being widely applied you know, across the board makes things complicated. So thus, if you're going to invest in Uber, if you're going to say, you know what, this is the goal we're going to do, whether you're the CEO or an investor or somebody in the in the company, if you get behind Uber, part of what you're getting behind is the idea of having to break the rules. You exist to break the rules. You exist to break the idea of what was and to start with something new. Now, in all tech companies, in all new companies, starting with a new idea, that's always the case. In Uber, it's just crystal clear because they're the, the, the sum tonnage of regulations, especially regional and local ones, make it clear that they're breaking rules. So if they started, their seed and their core of who they are is to break rules. To not give the standard interview, to not say the normal things you're supposed to, boober, to not do the things everybody else is doing, to you know... uh, well, I think the, surge, the sexual harassment one doesn't really apply, but the, to not choose to, when everybody gets out of the Trump Council, they choose not to. When everybody else is boycotting the travel ban in New York, they choose not to. When everybody else is uh, trying to abide by regulations, they're pr- pr- producing entire policies and programs designed to obfuscate and skate those regulations. They are rule breakers. That is the pattern of who they are. Not evil, rule breakers. The outlaw right? The rebel. This is who they are. If you want to go back to uh, uh, archetypes, they're the rebel. That's their employer brand. They do not hire people who play by the rules. They hire people who break rules. Now, sometimes that leads to horrible, horrible, horrible things like sexual harassment. They're breaking the rules. You're not supposed to do that. Obviously, everybody should know you're not supposed to sexually harass or harass anybody, right? That should be basic. But they're rule breakers. They think they're above or outside the law. Thus, they get to do stupid things like that. Those are, I guess, not a core idea. I don't think Travis started the company saying, great, we're going to hire a bunch of women and sexually harass them. Yay. I think what they said was we've ha- developed a culture of outlawness or rebelness, and this was an unintended, con- an unintended consequence. Let's be fair. HR does not seem to be showing up to Uber meetings. It's not how they do things. HR is about rules. No one got into HR because they like the rebel nature of it, right? No one. No one. People get into HR because they like rules. They like to establish processes. They like to follow it. That's what every HR person I've ever met, good, bad, or indifferent, they really got behind the concept of let's put together some good rules. That's who they are, right? No one gets into marketing because they like math. No one gets into tech support because they like, you know, I'm not going to get into that. HR is about rules. So, thus, you can see a problem. Now, here's the problem. Now that you've established that culture, you've established that brand, that employer brand of We Are Rebels, the problem is, is what got you here isn't going to get you there. You've noticed probably by now that most people who start companies. In, especially in the Silicon Valley, they, they have tech startups, and they grow them, and they whether they're unicorn or they just grow at a great pace, you know, just not quite big enough to be called a unicorn, or whatever the criteria is. Um, at some point, they get too big or too massive or too mature and they the founder wanders away or is, is demoted or given a different job. They're head of technology. They're head of innovation, but they're no longer the owner-CEO. They might be owner. They might have the biggest chunk of stock, but they're not the CEO. They're not making choices from the front because the people who start companies are almost always not good people to manage and grow companies. They're different skill sets, right? And so, Uber is hitting that clearly, clearly, clearly hitting, probably hit it a while ago, but now it's just gone way too far, where the CEO, who is good at being a rebel, at breaking rules, at obfuscating the rules to try and make some amazing change happen, that's not who Uber needs to be now. Uber now needs to be a far more mature Uber. Uber makes plenty of money. They've planted their flag. Everybody knows what Uber's all about. Now you need to bring in somebody who can say, look, the adults are in charge. We're going to help make this happen. Let's pretend a new island is emerging out of the Atlantic. There it is. It's uh, New Island, Stan. Congratulations. Welcome. Here's your flag. Um, and Uber decides to go over there and say, we're going to plant, you know, we're going to have Uber in uh, New Island, Stand, Stan, rather. Now, Uber, who has a track record of avoiding the rules and breaking rules and not telling the truth to regulators and trying to you know get around things and they come up to new island stands government and say we would really like to create a partnership where we help you out now because they have a brand perception of breaking rules should the government regulator regulators of new island stand believe the promises probably not (laughs) they have a history of lying to government regulators that's the culture and what has to happen right now, I think, on a certain level is that leadership has to change so we can, so that Uber can say, look, yes, that was the past. We have to grow and mature and no longer be the outlaw at the level of obfuscation and illegalness and all that other good stuff, but to say, look, we're trying to grow and help everybody grow and this is the direction we're going to grow and change that employer brand. The problem, of course, is that the employer brand is a pattern and you can't change a pattern on a dime because there's a historical implications and 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 the the memory everyone has of who you used to be right so the you know if it, it took a while for everybody to go wow ford seems to be really serious about the hybrid thing cuz for a long time they were not for american car companies were very not for the hybrid it took them a very long time they had to make a big change the day they released the hybrid everyone did not say oh good they get it everybody kind of went well one finally and two yeah 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 are you committed to it we'll see the historical memory of the pattern that was couldn't be overwritten by a single thing patterns do not get overwritten by a single change you have to change and then create a pattern around that change you have to grow in that new direction so if uber wants to change its employer brand and let's be fair it really should want to at this point. It's had a bad month. If you could not make this more crystal clear, I do not know what you need to hear, but you need a leadership change on some form. And frankly, that's as far as I want to take that. However, once you have a new leader, uh, some sense of new leadership, and once you establish who you want to be now that it's no longer an outlaw, or maybe you change the flavor of outlaw you are, I don't know. You could probably play it a couple different ways. You have to change the pattern, you have to change the stories. So the stories are talking in alignment of the brand so for example hold on let me take a sip of coffee here i know the tension's killing you um for example uber decides because magic wand um that is it is all about innovation it's not about outlaw it's about innovation that's an it's employer brand and it's connected to its consumer brand changing rules doing new things you know bringing new ideas they are the magician right if you want to go back to archetypes and i do like archetypes i think they're very cool um, they are the magician. They're bringing new ideas to you, to, reg- to quote unquote regular people. Their employer brand has to be, how do you support that magician? If we're all magicians, what does it mean to be a magician? Does it mean breaking rules? Sometimes, but in a carefully considered way about being smart enough to know that those changes and rule breaking have implications. So. If you think back to like Fantasia you've got Mickey Mouse who you've got the, the, the Merlin wizard who knows how to do things and he has the magic and he makes changes and he goes to sleep and he hands and, and, and lets Mickey Mouse pick up the wand and do things. Mickey is not a good magician. Mickey made you know he's trying to mop something up and he makes a million brooms and they're carrying water and suddenly he floods the whole building that is unintentional unintended consequences based on the fact that he's not a very good magician. He's not a magician. He's a uh, an intern. He's a, an apprentice and not even a good one. The magician would know if I make that choice to animate that broom to carry the water, I got to be careful that this other thing doesn't happen. That is what it means to be a magician is to understand how all the rules interconnect so that I can choose judiciously when it makes sense to break them. Otherwise, I'm really here focused not to break rules for rule-breaking sake, which right now let's be fair, Uber feels like almost it's getting to that point. It's about breaking rules occasionally, but only when necessary, to create innovation. That could be a potential new brand. That could be a potential new direction. I'm not saying that's where they are or where they're going, but that is a direction. How do you then take that wonderful idea and activate it and turn it into something real? Okay, now, as we've said before, making Posters and sticking them on the on the office walls about we're magicians means exactly squat. It's a dumb idea, and I and I used to have a company that did that. That one day I walked into work and they had these posters and placards up, you know, about leadership, and I went, Oh no, this is oh no, you don't get it. You think by chanting these ideas we believe these ideas? That's silly. So what you have to do is find a way to one. Communicate this change in employer brand to your employees because they are the advocates and they are the ambassadors of your employer brand first and foremost. They are the the core of your culture. Therefore, if your culture doesn't fit your brand, you're not going to get anywhere. Your core, your culture creates, you know, through a series of channels, your brand. So if your culture doesn't align with your brand, you're never getting anywhere. So, you have to communicate to your employees, these things don't stand. Rule breaking for rule breaking sake will not stand. HR is going to have to play some more uh, clear and aggressive role in how we do things. Not to keep you from doing amazing things, because we're magicians, but to keep you from doing the things that get us in our way. To make sure that when you're choosing to break rules, you're being judicious about it. That you know the implications. That's step one. And I think there needs to be... A lot more than just a quick email, right? <laughs> the, the new leader or Travis, whoever doesn't say, hey, everybody, we're this now. Got to go, bye. Uh, it doesn't work that way. It's got to be something more, I don't want to say concrete because I, I think that there's an implication there. It's got to be a launch. It's got to be an idea. It's like, look, this is who we were. This is who we are. And let's be fair. Silicon Valley loves a good launch party. They love a good launch event. They got to relaunch their employer brand the same way they would a new product or a new company. This is who we are. You bring in, you know, maybe a band or whatever. There's a party. There's, a, but It's like, well, look, we're investing in this thing because that's what an event is. What really happens in an event, how that creates value isn't because the fact that you got them all drunk and you fed them uh, little hot dogs, little the, the Vienna wieners or whatever in barbecue sauce. That's not the thing. The thing is that the company invested money, time, and resources to make this event happen. Therefore, it must be committed to this idea. That is exactly step one of a million in terms of establishing and re-establishing Uber's new brand. Then what do you do? Well, then you start to show people as being magicians. You have to create stories that show what is right and what is wrong. You almost have to make a, for those of you who get this reference, a goofus and gallant kind of thing. Goofus was always doing things wrong and gallant was always doing things right. From Highlights Children's Magazine, Uh, in my dentist waiting area uh, from a million years ago. Um, You have to show that goofus in this example would break rules and do stupid things just because um, they they were impatient and they wanted to get this thing done. Gallant would figure out what the ultimate goal was and figure out how to build a team that connected with the right people inside and outside of Uber to make it happen, to make it a permanent fix and not a short-term solution. Because let's be fair, part of being a rebel is that you get these, because you're breaking rules, you get short-term solutions that have long-term implications and consequences. The magician understands the long-term implications and consequences and works around and works with them, not against them. Right? So you start telling these stories about does, developer A does this and that's bad and that's why, this is why it's bad. But developer B does this and that's good. Now it took a little longer, but the value of this was this, 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 and this, and we, and we gave developer B a promotion. We have to make clear incentives for doing the right thing. That starts to change the culture. Telling stories about what was wrong and why it was wrong and what was right and what the incentive for doing the right thing is, that's a step in the right direction. Then you have to review all of your processes, anything that comes anywhere near, anything that looks like lawbreaking or obfuscation, you kill it with a shovel today. Pop it in the back of the head, bury it in a shallow grave, you're done. Don't do it. For the next two to four years, Anything, any any developer that runs a red light or doesn't complete a stop at a, at a stop sign and rolls through it will be seen in the light of Uber being a rule breaker. That is what we're talking about. That continues the old pattern and thus disturbs the newest emerging pattern and makes things more complicated. Right? That's the problem. Most, when brands try to change, they they don't completely kill all the old patterns. It, ru- it ruins the pattern you're trying to create. It confuses it. If you think about it drumming, it's the wrong rhythm and it gets things all messed up and nobody knows how to dance to it. Sorry, I play drums. Now you know. Um, that's the pattern. You have to establish a pattern. Then you have to go back and review all the other things you do that reinforce the pattern. Are your incentives the right things? Are they applied to the right people? What are the stories people are talking about? that reinforce the old brand. Go to your Glassdoor reviews. Go to your Indeed reviews. Go and figure out what people are saying about you when they're not talking directly to you. Don't worry about the press yet. Worry about... This is one of those things where the press is going to hope for you to screw up. They're going to hope for you to run those red lights and, and make those choices because there's a story in it. That's what they want. That's how they're incentivized. No big deal. So you have to do everything you can to kill all those stories before they happen, and that starts by changing your inner core of who you are, changing your culture. Look, some companies, when they screw up, you're, look at a Japanese government. When there is a scandal, everybody gets fired in a week. <laughs> it's, it's brutal, but it makes it very clear that we do not stand for these things, and thus they, you know, they, we, they you know, the, the hope is that we try to stop them from ever ha- happening. If you have a problem and a rule that is broken and you don't immediately and brutally penalize the people who are part of that and the people who oversaw that and anybody connected with it, you are allowing the door to be open to say, yeah, we just slapped them on the wrist. It's okay. And guess what? Back to the old patterns. Changing a brand is hard. Changing all those patterns is hard because they are. Again, like a drum kit, they're all applying all these different polyrhythms and changes and, and, you know, whether it's the kick drum or the snare or the hi-hat and all the crash cymbals or whatever, they all work together to create a pattern. And if you try to apply bits of different non-rhythmic or at least not aligned with that rhythmic patterns, it just gets all disrupted. It sounds like noise and no one believes it. and, And in light of having nothing new to believe, they believe what they used to believe, which is the old pattern. So Uber's got a lot of work to do, not to even begin to even put a fine point on it. But we've gone 45 minutes here, and you're tired of hearing me talk. And I'm getting to the point where my voice is going to start going. I'm starting to get a really you know radio-friendly voice. Um, that's that. So uh, that's how we talk about empl- uh, Uber as an employer brand as a lesson. I think there's a lot to be learned here. I'm going to say right now that I do not own any stock. I make it super clear that I have no financial investment whatsoever. I still, in fact, use Uber. Um, I'm a little worried about, you know, what their political beliefs are and whether or not they align to mine. But what have you? That's the personal choice I make, and it has nothing to do with what I just said. I think. So there you go. Um, I have no idea what I'm talking about next week, so I'm trying to put together a big panel of some very, very, very cool people. Um, it takes time to do that. I'm finding, <laughs> as if I didn't know before. So I don't know when that's going to be ready to go, but hopefully that's soon. Otherwise, if you have any questions, if you'd like to quibble about this, if you'd like to. Um, offer me a high-paying salary at Uber where I can help you change your brand. <laughs> That's not going to happen. I take that back. Um, because no one's going to like it when I say step one is to change your leadership. I think I get fired that day. Um, I'm just kidding. If you have any questions or quibbles or want to kind of talk about this stuff, whether it's employer brand or whether it's you know hiring managers or how you're attracting and retaining talent and how all these things work together, because I don't think we have really touched on these the ideas that all these... Little teeny things are part of this bigger brand pattern, uh, and that includes things like how much your ATS works, or how well your ATS works, or how people see your ATS. Um, Find me on the Twitter. You can find me on the Twitter at The War for Talent, The War for Talent, or you can go to our website, thetalentcast.com. Share this with your friends, uh, with your coworkers, and people who like talent acquisition type stuff. I'm really uh, thrilled by the response we're getting. We're growing every week. I, I, I can't Thank you enough for sharing and, and telling people about it. Um, I'm always, and this is, you can, you can stop listening now. I'm just a complete random aside. There's, uh, I, I like to look at my stats every once in a while, and I don't get clear stats, so I don't know who you are. I just know that um, really all I know is what op- uh, operating system and what country is downloading my app, and it's really interesting when someone kind of out of the blue shows up and is clearly has downloaded 10 of them. <laughs> This morning I woke up and checked it before I started this thing, and somebody from the Netherlands has has downloaded seventeen copies. So, thank you, my friends from the Dutch lands. Uh, (laughs) I don't know why, but enjoy the binge. Um, Otherwise, tell your friends about this. uh, Review it, or you know, review it on iTunes and and Google Play. I appreciate that stuff. Otherwise, I will see you next week and uh, have a great week. Bye.